Sunday was triumphant. Monday was troubling. Tuesday is challenging. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Egan. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will be challenged by the religious authorities. All right, Mark, take us into the next day. Chapter 11, verse 19. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Tuesday. Jesus and his followers retreat back to Bethany for the evening, maybe for safety reasons or maybe because there was no room in the inns. After Tuesday evening comes Tuesday morning, and they headed back into Jerusalem, and they passed the tree Jesus cursed yesterday morning before cleansing the temple. How's it doing? Verse 20 through 25. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses." Jesus had told the tree it would never bear fruit again, and it won't. Peter notices it, and it would be remarkable. Jesus tells his followers that true faith in God is faith that he'll answer. Faith without double-mindedness can lead to powerful actions and powerful responses by God on earth. This isn't a name it and claim it type of faith, but when our hearts are attuned to God in faith, when we're headed in his direction, our will joins with his, and when we ask for things he truly, sincerely wants to do in this world, bringing the kingdom to earth, and we do it with faith, it can happen. This kind of faith has been dampened by postmodernism, but I believe it could be found once again. Can you imagine? Real healings, real miracles, real power. All of those things can be real when our faith is whole. When my daughter was seven years old, we were making angel ornaments for Christmas at the kitchen table, and somehow the discussion worked its way around towards miracles, and she spoke up and said, miracles don't happen anymore, though. And I was shocked. If anyone should believe in miracles, it should be a kid, and especially my kid. I asked her where she heard that, and she said it was in her Bible. 
She had a kid's illustrative Bible that actually said that. It took me a while to convince her that her Bible was someone's interpretation and that it could be mistaken. I guess it's good she had it ingrained in her mind that her Bible was right, but her Bible was wrong. Still, it opened my eyes. And that was 11 years ago. Faith is marginalized all around us at alarming rates. And the American church is showing distrust of Yahweh. So much distrust that they're attempting to seize power to save themselves through the seven mountains of influence. You've seen this, right? We got to get a Christian leader in charge of family, religion, education, media, entertainment, business, and especially government. And then we can steer this thing on our own. We're eating from the wrong tree, y'all. And we're taking God's name in vain the whole way. But back to Jesus. He said, ask and it shall be given to you. Ask for what God wants to give. I mentioned a challenge, right? Here it comes. Mark 11, 27 to 33. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say, Then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. (laughs) So they challenged Jesus' authority to do things like heal the blind, cause the lame to walk, raise Lazarus to life, more recently, like yesterday, cleanse the temple. Like, who gave him permission? And he doesn't tell them. Well, what's the answer? The answer is Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of all things. They didn't want to answer Jesus' question, which he posed as the key to getting his answer. They don't want to say John the Baptist is just a dude because they'll lose influence. And they don't want to say he's from God because they don't think so. If they did, they'd have to trust him when he said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, we're headed over to Matthew's authorized official account to watch Jesus provide some reactionary teaching in front of the gathered nation. Remember, everyone of Israel had gathered for this pilgrimage feast of Passover. Matthew places this right after the John the Baptist issue. Matthew 21, verse 28 to 32. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, 
I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Oh boy. All right. So the Torah demanded that sons honor and obey their parents, but fathers especially. And in this parable, we have a kid who says he will obey, but then doesn't. And then we have another kid who says he won't, but then does. The one who ends up doing, the one who ends up obeying is the obedient son. And Jesus connects the dots to say that the religious class rejecting him are those who told Yahweh that they've trusted him their whole lives. But then when he presents to them his son as a gift for life, they say, nope, and they walk away. Meanwhile, the sinners of the community who have clearly been distrusting and disobeying Yahweh all along have now seen Jesus and put their energy into following him. And he mentions John. It reminds them that they ignored him. He was from God. And to drive home this point, catch the setup for this next parable. Verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This has very clear context. God created the world like a vineyard. He left it rented to Israel to be taken care of, to reap the harvest. God sent prophets to the nation to set them right. But they were rejected, they were cast out, they were killed, they were stoned, one by one. And then the parable takes on some present tense. God had sent his son, and Jesus says they've decided to kill him too. The people continually spill the blood of their brothers, from whom God has even sent. The listeners did not immediately catch the context, and they'll answer to their own doom. Similar to King David when presented with a parable from the prophet Nathan. Verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Israel had a mission and they blew it. But this is hyperbole, widespread universal hyperbole. Many individuals inside the nation believed, but the theological history says Israel failed. Thus, the stewardship of Yahweh's kingdom through Jesus will be given to a new nation, and not a neighboring nation or one on a different continent, but a people of a new exodus, a people from all nations. And Jesus sees himself as the cornerstone that was rejected in Psalm 118, but also as a stone that will crush, which has echoes of the stone that destroys the feet of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue. Their reaction? Do they now understand that they've condemned themselves with their answer? When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. So their fear is providing Jesus space to teach in public. Matthew 22, starting in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went into the roads and gathered all they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This parable is similar to one that Jesus shared earlier, but it has its own specific twists, which fit the moment. As a kingdom parable, the main characters Yahweh, if he has a son, or Jesus, if he doesn't. The wedding banquet is the kingdom, and God intends to bring in the nation of Israel to the kingdom. They've known about it the longest. They've heard about it forever. And so they're invited. But they not only rejected the invitation, 
They killed those who delivered the invitations. Prophet after prophet. Yahweh opens the banquet to all mankind in every street, opening the kingdom to all who receive the invitation, which is Jesus. It's often thought if you receive the invitation, which is Jesus, you are dressed in wedding clothes. Your imputed righteousness and holiness, your grace coverings. If anyone tries to crash the party and get into the kingdom of God without grace, they'd be thrown out. And that makes sense. However, what if the man is already in the kingdom as it appears? Would that then make him a believer as well? Would that therefore redefine the wedding clothes as a reward rather than grace? Possibly at the judgment seat of Christ? Would that then redefine the version of outer darkness as a place of loss, not partaking in the rewards of the feast, but not losing the kingdom? If that's true, the scenario of the outer darkness would not mean hell and could be another example of how outer darkness might not have a universal definition. And if that's true, then the invitation to the kingdom could be received but the wedding clothes will be optional. That's just food for thought. There are many other ways to look at that passage. Now, if you want to try to wrap your head around predestination and divine election along with freedom of choice, go ahead and look at verse 14 again. For many are invited, but few are chosen. It doesn't say many are invited, but only few will accept. It says few are chosen because we are unable to accept this invitation on our own. God has to call us and choose us to himself, remove our blinders and bring us in. Many are invited, but few are chosen. This could read, everyone who has ever lived has been invited, but not everyone has been called to receive it. How can they receive it if they've not heard it? I have a terrible analogy. The Arizona Cardinals had one of the best receivers in the history of the game in Larry Fitzgerald. If you threw it near Larry, he would catch it. But after legendary quarterback Kurt Warner retired, the team struggled to find a quarterback who could regularly get the ball to Larry. One day, I was watching a game in which Larry only caught one pass to extend his reception streak to 129 consecutive games. He had one catch in a game he could have easily caught 10. The problem wasn't Larry. It was the passer. The passer couldn't get the ball to the receiver. And if you don't believe me, see how good Larry suddenly got when Carson Palmer joined the team and then faded again under Rosen and Murray. Passer problems. So, I want to ask this gently. Are we passing the gospel well? All mankind has been invited into the new life of Christ. And if we stick with this terrible football analogy, the world is full of open wide receivers, and you have plenty of time in the pocket to pass but are you going to throw the ball? And are you going to throw it well?
Or does it have some bad spin? And I'm not trying to say that the world is full of Fitzgeralds, ready to receive the world with gladness. But there are some. And there are some receivers that aren't open at all. Maybe they're guarding themselves or they're looking the other way, or they are heavily defended in some screw tape fashion. But that's not our problem. We're to do anything and everything we can to give them the option to catch a clean pass. Sometimes the problem is they just don't want to catch a pass from us because we're not the type of people that they want to be associated with. And if that's because of Christ crucified, then okay. But if that's because of some other garbage that we've attached to the gospel, then that just makes us a bad passer. You can think of the things that would be bad spin, right? To make the pass uncatchable. All the terrible things that are attached to the gospel. Now, those wanting to kill Jesus will be looking to him to say something incriminating. You know, so that the crowds will change their minds and join them in wanting him dead. Matthew 22:15-17. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, "Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think?" Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, we need to understand who this delegation is that approaches Jesus to understand their plan. The Pharisees oppose Rome and all attempts by Rome to cramp their Jewish style and heritage. Meanwhile, the Herodians are active supporters of King Herod. And thus, they favor making changes as dictated by Rome to keep Rome happy. Luke even calls them spies. If Jesus says that they should pay taxes to Caesar, he'll upset the Pharisees, who want Rome to stay out of Jewish affairs and believe the only form of taxing allowed should be for their temple upkeep. If Jesus says it's bad to pay Caesar his taxes, then the Herodians will be up in arms and he'll be declared a traitor of the state. Either way he goes, a mob of people should be upset enough to drive home their plan. Matthew 22, 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the thing that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. It's a pretty good answer. Silver coins with Caesar's portrait logically belong to him, but everything else belongs to God. What would that mean for us as image bearers. It's a coincidence 
that American tax season overlaps the Easter season, but in case anyone needs to hear this, Jesus paid his taxes. The Pharisees are temporarily stumped. The Herodians are probably pleased. And here comes a third group, the Sadducees. If the Pharisees are the conservative purists sticking to the scriptures, then the Sadducees are the liberals. They don't believe in the resurrection, nor do they believe in demons, evil spirits, angels, or anything supernatural. We have a lot of Sadducees in the church age as well, and they apparently write children's illustrative Bibles. Matthew twenty-two twenty-three. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. This is a riddle that they don't even care to find the answer to because they don't believe in the resurrection. That the the whole setup is just a trap. But the question is, whose wife? So Jesus answers, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For... In the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He's not a God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. I'm sure that was an irritating answer, because he basically calls the Sadducees fools. And that's the point here. There is a resurrection. And nobody's married there. Marriage is an earthly system for two people to live together as one, to share in heartache and blessing, to create or foster life, and to stick together until death. The death of a marriage isn't even divorce in the cosmic sense. It's the physical death of one of the partners. Remarrying after the death of a spouse provides No cosmic complications because you do not remain married in the resurrection. Remarrying while the spouse is still alive is a whole other animal that Jesus and the apostles address over time, but ultimately, they aren't married in the resurrection either. I do hope that we're close, though. I really like Lori. So who's next to try to trap Jesus? The Pharisees have tried, the Herodians tried, the Sadducees tried. It's time for the Pharisees round two, and now they send a Torah expert. Verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind 
This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Love God, love others. That's not hippy-dippy Christianity. It's Christianity. It's not liberal. It's central. If our actions are more closely related to distrusting God and seizing power while hating other people, then we're far from the call of Jesus here. Now, Mark tells us something interesting about this guy. Mark 12, 32 to 34 says, He replied, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. But Jesus has one. Matthew twenty-two forty-one. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus isn't a descendant of David, but he's also more than that. He's Yahweh's son, which, by the way, going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the word son could be used to mean the same type as Jesus is the same type as Yahweh. The Pharisees have not understood this part of the prophecies. The Pharisees are stubborn and unwilling to change their theological views to embrace the fact that the Messiah is the same type as Yahweh as well as the son of David. That he is divine and he is human. just as the Son of Man prophecy foretold. And with this clear rejection of truth, Jesus offers them a series of extremely difficult warnings. They're very clear, and so I won't do much commentary. I'm just going to read them as they would have been stated by Jesus on the temple grounds. Matthew 23 Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of the honor 
at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean out the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part in the shedding of the blood of prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly. 
I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus wants the people to respect the position of the Pharisees and obey them, but not be like them in any way. These woes are very pointed and would help the crowds see a need for deconstruction and reconstruction in their faith while also turning the religious leaders' faces red hot. There's judgment here. And it will be spread to the whole nation because of this failure. Why so serious? Because Israel was in a covenant relationship with Yahweh. They had blessings and curses connected with their faithfulness and obedience to his word. And because of this covenant relationship, when they blow it, there is judgment. Jumping to Mark to round out Tuesday, Jesus does some people watching. Mark 12, 41 to 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box, many rich people putting large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which makes a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Jesus had been in the part of the temple called the Court of the Gentiles. It was a public place of speaking. But from there, he has now moved into the Court of Women, which history tells us is where there were 13 trumpet-shaped collection plates for receiving people's free will offerings. And so Jesus is sitting opposite the Court of these offering plates, and he's watching people give. And the crowds are pouring in large amounts of cash at this Passover. And this woman tosses in two leptas, which is one sixty-fourth of a Roman denarius. Two leptas are worth less than a penny. Jesus says she's given more, though, because of the percentage of what she has. And it's this kind of 100% giving of oneself that is a sign of one's heart being committed to Christ. If you want to know what the opposite of a Pharisee is, look at this woman. If you want to understand the heart of a person in Christ, look at this woman. Now, we won't stay here. This isn't a level of Christianity we can achieve and hold on to, but it is the expression of a new heart. And these expressions find their way in our hearts when we let go of ourselves and we trust Jesus. So this is what a good day following Jesus looks like. All right, what a Tuesday. The King has come. The kingdom is not as expected. He hasn't met the messianic expectations of some. He hasn't carried a sword or sought to dominate the Romans. He hasn't sought power. But he hasn't ignored the needs of the people. He's the kind of king that our broken world needs. He's just the kind of king that your heart needs. As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. 
And there's a lot. The kingdom vineyard has been entrusted to us to be fruitful. So let's be wise and trusting stewards. Many have been invited to the kingdom, but few are chosen. Are we making clean passes or are we ruining our passes with spin about political issues or young earth creation issues or predestination issues or extra biblical issues, cultural issues? Loving God and loving others is more valuable than any other religious activity. Love is the root of the law and the prophets, and without it, we have nothing. And finally, God values our trust with everything that he has given us. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will say more about Jerusalem's judgment.